Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360, a podcast brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This program is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, we often try to understand current events by invoking terminology used during past moments in history. Talk of a new Cold War provides a prominent example of that. A wave of left-wing election victories in Latin America back in the late 1990s and early 2000s is commonly referred to as the Pink Tide. And many analysts are invoking that term today to describe recent election results throughout the region with talk of a second wave pink tide. But there are always limits to the utility of describing the present by invoking the past. So today we're going to ask our panel to help us understand how this new pink tide may be different from its predecessor of two decades ago. So let's get to it. Please welcome to the program Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Latin American Program Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Well, hello to all of you. Great to see you again. I thought we could begin with a bit of a history lesson. I'm assuming many of our viewers, or listeners, I should say, are well-versed in the notion of a pink tide, but just not to leave anyone on the sidelines of the discussion. Uh, I'm going to ask either Benjamin or Cindy or to put your heads together and give us a little history lesson of that previous pink tide that we're referencing. Cindy, go ahead, please. Thanks, John. I can I can start with this. Um, the previous pink tide was very much a response to the kinds of neoliberal market reforms that Latin American governments had made in the 1990s in the wake of uh, the debt crisis, the lost decade of the 1980s. Um, restructuring that left a lot of unemployment, um, unmet social demands and that kind of thing, so that the election of this wave of um, left leader, starting with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, um, started coming to power in 98-99 um, and throughout the 2000s. The, the difference and the main, it's just a huge difference. You have to understand political economy to, to really understand the differences between the left in the 2000s and the left now. Important also to distinguish between the authoritarian left, which is what you see in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. um, you also saw to a lesser extent in Ecuador and Bolivia and the more social democratic uh, or liberal democratic left in Chile, Uruguay and, and elsewhere. Um, the, the main difference between now and then, um, I think, is in external, the exter external economic circumstances. The years of the 2000s saw this enormous commodities boom that gave left governments tremendous resources um, to channel money into domestic social programs. Um, and the context, the international context is completely different right now, where governments are coming out of a pandemic, they're faced with high inflation because not only of um, tightening of interest rates um, in, in the United States and elsewhere, but also the war in Ukraine and what that's done uh, to soaring food and, and energy prices. Coming out of the pandemic, high levels of, of debt to, to GDP, which limits borrowing for continued social spending. So the, the uh, economic conditions are completely different um, in this 
two decades that we have seen, you know, a wave of of left governments. And I'll maybe give Benjamin a handoff by saying that a lot of the left governments that, that seem to show a, a swing of the pendulum really are more an anti-incumbent wave um, that has come about as a result uh, principally of the pandemic, but not solely. I'll stop there. Benjamin Gaudin. Yeah, I think another distinction that's important is precisely what Cindy pointed out, which is the original Pink Tide really had some ideologically cohesive ideas behind it. It was this rejection of the so-called Washington consensus, these neoliberal ideas, including a shrinking of the state and opening of markets. This time around, it really is just a rejection of incumbents who happen to have largely been conservatives or center-right parties and individuals. And so what you've seen now does not seem to reflect a big ideological transformation amongst Latin American voters. It's just anguish at the difficult conditions in the region and a lack of confidence in public institutions. And I think you are already seeing the possibility of this so-called new pink tide reversing itself. And there will be an election in October in Argentina, where very likely the government will pass from leftist hands into the hands of conservatives, maybe even a far-right libertarian candidate. And so there's reason to believe that this trend might already be petering out. Well, you know, it thanks thanks to both of you for both the history lesson and connecting us to today and, and pointing out the differences. One thing I wanted to ask you about before we dive more into the current situation is about the legacy factor, right? All political movements come and go and they rise and fall, but sometimes they leave remnants that are part of the 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 scene in a lasting way. I think here in the United States, Ronald Reagan's anti-government rhetoric is still a big part of the way Americans think about government and politics, even though the Reagan years seem like a, 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 a very distant memory when you compare it to today's conservatism. So uh, do we see any remnants like that in the region from the previous pink tide? What is the lasting legacy if such a thing exists? What, what, I, what I'd say, John, is that some of the motivating factors that led to that first transformation remain. This idea that neoliberalism is a dirty word, that the region did not succeed with some of those policies that Cindy referenced in the 1990s, uh, but also that that period, thanks not necessarily to the policies during the original pink tide, but thanks to the high commodity prices in that so-called commodity super cycle era, did lead to a reduction of poverty and a big increase in the middle class, particularly in, in large countries like Brazil. And so I do think there are some legacies from that era and that even if the so-called new pink tide is motivated by very different external and regional conditions, um, I wouldn't discount some of the happy memories from that era motivating voters in some cases um, and other observers to be excited about a potential new uh, pink tide era, um, again, for however long it will last. Sure. John, the legacy, I think, um, speaks to the issue of expectations, um, popular expectations in bringing the left back into power, that these governments would be more um, helpful to their economic situation. There were huge increases in poverty and equality and unemployment during the pandemic. And I think there's the hope, you know, in a lot of electorates that uh, a return of the left will reinvigorate some of those social programs. And I think that there's going to be a great deal of frustration because governments face enormous resource constraints. 
um, and uh, a number of other uh, domestic things like, you know, rising crime that has uh, taken on greater salience. So the legacy issue would be um, a sense um, that the among the left that the state, that the government itself has a much larger role to play in um, directing the economy and, and in generating social welfare. This is very different from sort of a laissez-faire capitalist view. Um, and um, that is, I think, a, a continuity. But again, given the, the very different conditions economically, internationally, um, it's going to be very hard um, for the left to live up to uh, to that promise. Yeah, those expectations. The context matters, and the context is not conducive <laughs> to the, some of the expectations. Andrew, this has been described as a less pronounced and weaker tide. Uh, AMLO, how does he fit into this? How does Mexico fit into this movement? Um, thanks. Great question, John. I, I think as I was listening to, to Cindy and Benjamin, there are ways in which Mexico fits what, what they said and ways that it doesn't, the, the ways that it does certainly, uh, I think it was Benjamin who said, uh, neoliberalism is a dirty word. And, and that is certainly true in, in Mexico, where anybody who opposes AMLO or anything that, that the AMLO administration has proposed is considered um, to be a, a, a neoliberal, meaning a, a, a dirty word. Um, it's also true that that Lopez Obrador envisions a larger role of the state and a, a smaller role for the private sector. I think maybe one of the differences, though, is that in a lot of ways, Lopez Obrador is doesn't really fit into the leftist model in that he's fiscally quite conservative and he's socially conservative. So it, it's sort of an interesting dichotomy in that in, in some ways he would fit that that new pink tide. But in other ways, I, I suspect the 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 more pink members maybe wouldn't see AMLO as a um, as fully on board. I mean, it it prompts me to wonder. Maybe Cindy or Benjamin would comment. I, I think sometimes Lopez Obrador would like to position himself as sort of the elder statesman of the the new pink tide. It's not clear to me. I don't know what what Cindy or Benjamin. What you guys think? It's not clear to me that the rest of the leaders in the hemisphere necessarily see him in that role. Yeah, well, and you know, as you say, left doesn't always mean the same thing, depending on where you're looking. And Cindy already mentioned the the dictators in the region who are leftists, but that's a far cry from what some of the other people were talking about. So, is this is this populist left? Is that the category that AMLO fits into? Yeah, we, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely populist. Um, and as I said, left in in many ways, left in the sense of believing in a stronger role of the state. Um, but not left in the sense of, you know, he, though he has, he's very much redistributed wealth and created lots of cash transfer programs, but he's been very careful not to increase the the debt in in any way at all. So in that sense, he's been. Uh, Cindy and Benjamin Andrews baited the hook. Any thoughts on how uh, President AMLO fits into the equation? I I would say that whatever AMLO's uh, ambitions to to be a, an elder statesman. I think this is sort of a leaderless movement right now, and that is a distinction um, from the original Pink Tide, when in many ways Hugo Chavez of Venezuela sort of led this thinking. You know, he didn't speak for some of the moderate, more democratic leftist governments in places like Chile and Uruguay, um, but he had a lot of resources in order to um, promote and, and export these ideologies, given the booming oil sector for for much of 
of his time in office. And at this point, th there's great divisions amongst the left of Latin America, or, or certainly there's a lot of internal struggles that have led leaders to, to look within their countries and, and, and struggle to create or recreate ideologically driven kind of institutions. So, so what I would say is, is it's frankly, this new pink tie doesn't really have an obvious leader and certainly not a leader with the resources to spread around the region and, and support like-minded uh, presidents. I, John, I think I, I slightly disagree with Benjamin. I agree that, that, you know, regional fragmentation is a, is a huge issue. Um, in the past, the first pink tide, um, Hugo Chavez, as Benjamin was mentioning, um, had this grand scheme called Petro Caribe, where he was providing, um, oil at, at, at discount, practically free prices to countries of the Caribbean, to Central America, particularly Cuba, um, with the decline of Venezuela's oil sector that has basically collapsed, except for, I think, what remains, which is a small oil subsidy um, uh, to Cuba. But what is, I think, a continuity is Lula's uh, in Brazil's quest for regional leadership. In the first iteration um, of leftist governments in the, two, in the 2000s, Lula was really trying to create um, Brazil-led unity in South America. Mexico was seen as having cast its lot with the United States and with Canada. So there were these new institutions called UNASUR, um, that were dominated by Brazil. Um, Brazil is continuing now to reinvigorate or attempt to reinvigorate UNASUR. Um, Lula has cast himself, his administration um, has cast itself as um, an arbiter of global politics, an attempt to mediate the crisis in Ukraine. How effective that will be, one doesn't know. Um, but I would say that, the again, the continuity between this period and the previous period is in um, Brazil's quest for essentially South American leadership slash dominance. Yeah, I guess I would say I think it's true that Lula would hope to play that role, maybe even more so than, than AMLO. Um, I just don't think it, it'll happen, Cindy. I mean, I think Lula just squeaked into office. You know, he's got a lot of trouble getting support in Congress. He, you know, suffered January 8th, as you know, this incredible attack on Brazilian institutions. I just don't think he has the wherewithal to, to lead this leftist movement such as it is. Chris, I want to turn to you, if I could. We, you were, we were having a conversation before we began recording, and you had some interesting observations on what Canada might represent in this regard and whether or not there might be some lessons for other nations and other governments. Could you share that with our listeners? Oh, absolutely, John. You know, I think one of the things that, 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 that strikes me looking at this from more experience with Canada is the role that commodities play uh, as an underpinning of the regional economy. Canada is a big commodity producer. So are many of these countries. And one of the things that has tended to characterize these movements is the sudden increase in commodity prices or the potential that whether it's copper or critical minerals or maybe maybe gold or or whatever it is, is going to create a windfall. And the thing about commodities, they come out of the ground. They're part of the public uh, sort of the part of the country's patrimony. Um, you could use oil as another example, certainly affecting Mexico and other countries. And when these commodity price booms come in and suddenly it looks like there's this great chance to move the country forward, we've seen governments 
um, advance redistribution. Like how can we address income inequalities with some of the revenues that come in? And I think we sometimes think, oh, well, that that's socialist. So let's call it a pink tide. But it, it, it isn't quite. It's an attempt to sort of figure out how to work with a commodity price surge, which can be a huge impact. Now, Canada, luckily, uh, has diversified enough that it, the, those commodity price cycles aren't as dramatic. But I can point out that almost all of the governments in this region, few exceptions, but including very much the United States and Canada, are governments of the center left. And, you know, it's a question maybe of how far and we don't go as far as the authoritarian side. But there definitely is a moment that we're in. That seems to be the direction. But what strikes me is that the commodity price boom that we're seeing now in certain commodities, particularly critical minerals, is is one factor that is is catching the attention of governments and maybe changing the politics of the region. I want to get some thoughts on the impact on hemispheric relations. Uh, what you know, looking for, well, we, Chris, maybe we could start with you on Canada and the question. Here's something that Al Jazeera said, writing about this pink tide about a year ago. They called it a region-wide rejection of U.S. policies. Pretty blunt assessment. I don't know if anyone would agree with it as as bluntly as they stated it. Uh, and then looming in the background, of course, is China and other options that didn't exist in the same way uh, 20 years ago that they do today for alignment among nations, especially as it relates to economics. Chris, can we first get your thoughts on these hemispheric relationships and then we'll work our way south? No, absolutely, John. I think this is a very important factor. And right as we were recording this, the G7 are meeting in in Hiroshima, Japan. And one of the themes there is to address an argument uh, and a policy suite across the G7 to reach out to the, what we're calling now the global south uh, as countries that are developing countries that are sympathetic to China because China buys commodities, particularly critical minerals and processes them and and uh, and offers a way out of, of poverty for a lot of countries, an engine for development. It's important for the West to respond in kind. And Canada is in a funny position. Typically, it would say, oh, well, let's play the China card and we can get more development attention from the Americans. The Americans will want to buy more of our things. But because of the two Michaels, Canada can't really play the China card right now. It's not in a mood to. But many of the countries in Latin America could or at least could consider it. So it's very important for the, for the United States, for Canada in approaching the hemisphere to recognize that it has options and that in response to this, it's important to offer something positive, carrots, if you will, not just sticks. Mm-hmm. Andrew. Yeah, thanks. I mean, as always, lots of, lots of things to, to respond to. I mean, I, I think one, I, I guess one thought is that there there is the effort maybe to recreate UNISOR, but there's also a lot of talk about CELAC, which is UNISOR plus Mexico and the Caribbean uh, and Central America, I suppose, that, that Lopez Obrador has attempted to reinvigorate, again, as sort of a counterweight or a rejection of the OAS. And I think Cindy and Benjamin would remember better than I, but, um, you know, UNISOR was, was sort of the same thing, right? An effort to to sort of create a Latin American multilateral organization that excluded the U.S. and Canada. So that's maybe a, a parallel or, or, you know, sort of bringing up an old habit. Um, it isn't certainly clear to me how in, in reality, how CELAC and UNISOR and the OAS would, would coexist. Um, the other thing I think is kind of interesting, I don't really know the answer to this, is that, you know, you might think that with a pink tide, as in Chris pointed out, that, that you know, the U.S. government is also certainly more to the left, but it, it seems that 
if there's a commonality of, of overall vision, it's not necessarily creating a, you know, a great harmony um, between the government. So, I mean, maybe that gets to that whole point of it, some of it being a, a more of an anti-incumbent reaction than necessarily a desire to create some kind of a, um, a, a unified leftist Western hemisphere. Cindy and Benjamin, as we get your thoughts on the uh, implications for hemispheric relations, I want to introduce another factor into the equation we haven't talked about yet that maybe you can roll into your analysis. And that is about uh, something else that's different from 20 years ago is the prominence of climate change as an issue and the impact of extreme weather. Reuters, in their analysis, said the region's new pink tide has a distinct green tint. And and this could be also an area of cooperation, say, from the perspectives of the current Canadian and U.S. governments. Uh, Cindy Benjamin, your thoughts on this? Cindy, we'll begin with you. Sure, John. I, I think the um, the environmental agenda is uh, front and center, especially for Colombian President Gustavo Petro, also for Chilean President Gabriel Boric. Um, they have made um, a, a shift to renewables, you know, a, a major policy priority, and it does create a lot of common ground um, with the Biden administration. And I would say that in the case of, uh, of, of the Colombian government, um, where things that Gustavo Petro has said and, and directions that he has taken, the, the country have raised eyebrow, eyebrows, if not hackles, in the United States, um, the common emphasis on the um, uh, the energy transition, green economy is, is a great uh, area of overlap between U.S. government policy and Colombian government policy. There's obviously a great deal of criticism within Colombia about how rapidly Petro is trying to, um, uh, you know, to engineer that transition. In the case of U.S.-Colombian relations, the issue of, of narcotics trafficking and and coca cultivation, you know, continues to be a an important you know, factor in the relationship. But, but yes, um, and, and Lula as well um, is a leader in attempting to reverse these historic levels of deforestation that occurred during the previous government of Jair Bolsonaro. Um, so there is a, a great deal of commonality um, among left governments, but also um, between these governments in the United States on this issue. Benjamin, as we move into our final minutes, the potential is that this could be one of our last answers. So I have to put a lot of pressure on you, not just to respond to what you've been hearing, but also a, a thought I have is, can you talk to us about whether or not this pink tide has legs in the sense that, you know, we're always quick sometimes to crown a, a, an election or a, as a, as a forebearer of the new reality, right? I think of Karl Rove in this country talking about a permanent conservative rea uh, uh, a majority when George W. Bush was president and then along came Barack Obama. And so uh, if you could also comment not just on hemispheric relations, but also about whether or not the trend lines indicate that this tilt to the left has legs. I'd be happy to, John. First thing I'd say is, is environmental issues are actually not the only area for bridge building right now for the United States. These new pink tide leaders are simply not reflexively anti-American like some of their predecessors were. And so LGBT rights, women's equality, the fight against poverty, labor rights, there's a big menu of issues that they're 
interested or even willing to work with the United States on. And I think the Biden administration shares a lot of those priorities and is trying to find examples of ways the United States can work with democratic, pragmatic leftist figures throughout the Americas. We've got plenty of examples of them already, and I think we'll see plenty more. I'll just add one, which is, you know, countries like Argentina and Chile that have a lot of the critical minerals needed for batteries for electric vehicles, such as copper and and lithium. You're seeing lots of efforts by all sides to work together to strengthen these, these green energy supply chains. Now, whether this is even worth talking about because it might be so short is an open question. What I would say, John, is don't blink. This is a very fast <laughs> political cycle. Um, it's because of the anti-incumbency. It's because, you know, right now these leaders are already struggling. Leaders like Gabriel Boric, very unpopular. And Gustavo Petro in Colombia has lost popularity very quickly and has just had a dramatic change in his cabinet. Lula was elected, you know, by a very small margin and faces a lot of dissent domestically. And so there's every reason in the world to think that this cycle is, is going to rotate, uh, you know, in a New York minute. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll start with the election in Argentina and then it will just go from there. The only other example I'll give is just recently, a few days ago in Chile, you had an election for a constitutional convention, a process that was earlier dominated by the left and, and folks affiliated with the government is now dominated by the center right and the far right in Chile. Lots of other examples we'll see in the near future, including the recent presidential election in Paraguay. Well, we sort of uh, end where we began with Cindy's uh, history lesson, tides rise, tides fall. So stay tuned. Of course, we'll be talking about this more in the future. Uh, thanks to all of you today for your insights, and we look forward to learning more from you in the future. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz with the assistance of Javi Delgado, Aldrin Ballesteros, Emma Brown, and Sarah Doshi. They always make us look and sound good. So thanks to all of you for your great work behind the scenes. We'll be back soon with another episode of America's 360. Until then, on behalf of the A360 team and all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. I want to thank you for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.